Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Even the Score podcast, a podcast about soundtracks and scores from movies, TV shows, and video games. I am your host, Don, and I am, as always, joined by my two co-hosts, Anthony and Jason. Hello to you both. How diddly how? Hey, Don. Hey, Anthony. So what we are doing with today's episode is we've just come out of a fantastic, applause-worthy masterclass episode from uh, Anthony on the origins of horror in cinema and his own personal journey with horror, which was a delight to listen to. And I hope that everybody had a chance to listen to it because this is going to be a continuation episode in a way. So as we were going through our chat last time, uh, we got to the point where uh, Anthony really wanted to hone in on one of the movies, uh, Candyman from 1992. And we just thought that we wanted to kind of break that out as we also had uh, a 70s movie to uh, look forward to talking about Vampiros Lesbos. And we thought that was just prime opportunities to uh, move it into a second episode and really dive deep into those two movies, those two soundtracks, the connections that we have with them, the feelings that we have in, in reviewing the uh, the two pieces of cinema. And of course, I think it'll be a, a really great conversation for us to have. So that's what we're doing here today. So a separate episode. If you haven't listened to Anthony's Masterclass, definitely go back and take a look at it. It is great. It is really wonderful to listen to. And it is available wherever you have found this show, whether it's through our Twitter account or Instagram, if you've just found us on uh, whatever podcatcher app you're utilizing, go ahead and give that a download. It's a really great episode to, to give a listen. But before we get into the actual meat and potatoes here of the episode, we are going to get into our typical segment here. What are we listening to? And I'm going to pass it over to uh, Jason. Jason, what have you been listening to recently since our last record? Oh, it's been all over the place, to be quite honest. Definitely more jazz. Uh, <laughs> with Herbie Hancock's catalog being as gigantic as it is, I'm like, the collector in me is like, you know, I've got to catch them all. So um, I've been listening to uh, Sextant and Fat Albert's Rotunda and a third trio album of his from the mid-late 70s. Uh, I forget the exact title. I've been listening to that. I grabbed uh, Miles Davis's, I'm not even going to attempt the uh, French pronunciation of the album, but it's a uh, Lift to the Scaffold uh, soundtrack, as well as I feel like there was something else of his that I picked up kind of recently. Music has been really my only solace through this whole pandemic, and especially as of late. So there's a bunch of stuff that I'm forgetting, but like, you know, I tried to uh, run to my local record shop the other day and grabbed like a whole bunch of uh, some new, but then also some used stuff like a, another Weather Report album. So I've, I've literally been all over the place. And in the more recent space, I picked up this album from Freddie Gibbs and uh, Mad Lib which I have a Mad Lib album coming from uh, Vinyl Service uh, in the near future. And I was like, let me give this a whirl too, because uh, Freddie Gibbs has kind of been on my radar, but I've yet to pick up anything from him. So in the hip hop space, I can actually say that that's a pretty good and I'm really underappreciated because, you know, you're not going to find it on like any billboard chart or anything like that, but it's good stuff if you're a, a hip hop head. Christina said I never change. Lifestyles of the insane. I done walked through hell in these size 12. Speaking from my own mouth before I let the time tell. Dream team legal, I never take a L. Courtroom funeral fresh, Gavanti my lapel. So that's been my listing as of late. Nice. Really all over the place. How goes the journey with the bass? It goes. Uh, you know, my instructor, I actually had a lesson yesterday, but uh, in the previous lesson I had with him, had me uh, think about what song I wanted to kind of work up to as sort of like a recital. You know, like at first I was like spouting off like some of these complex, like, well, yeah, 
my instructor kind of set me back to reality uh, complex pieces by like Thundercat and some other stuff. But then I was like, let me just listen to some stuff and see what grabs me. And like in the car, I had this epiphany. I'm like, Oogie, oogie, oogie. Like, that is an excessive, like, the bass is almost the centerpiece of that entire song. It even has a bass solo, and it's, like, the type of vibe that, like, if I was playing that song and seeing people happy reacting to that song, that would be kind of everything. So I think that is the direction I'm going to go. But that aside, I'm learning stuff that is coming close to actual songs now. I had an interesting lesson yesterday about, like, how to meet my strings, which is something that hadn't come up before, but I was realizing as I was like, you know, incorporating more strings into what I'm doing, that is a thing I need to figure out. And it was like, I don't quite get anyway. So that'll be sort of my next journey, like trying to play more clean. That sounds exciting. It's it's cool stuff. And I think one of the things that I took away from that was the way in which you said that you want people to respond to that bass line and that song. That is so pure and that is so magical, I think, because that to me is really why uh, you want to perform or you want to create or you want to like share is like to get people's reactions and to give a positive reaction to something. So I'm really excited for your journey. And that's what I took away from it. I'll keep you posted. To me, it is one of the happier of happy songs. So perfect. Well, I think I'll jump in next because it. Uh, the first thing that I'm listening to is just completely out of the blue. And then the second thing ties into Anthony and just indirectly. And I'll go into that here in a little bit. But the first thing I've been listening to is the Stardew Valley soundtrack that I've been playing extensively on Switch. I've taken a bit of a slowdown to Animal Crossing just because, as I think a lot of people have found when they hit a certain point with the game, that there's just not a lot to do when you get to a certain time period, which I think I've kind of hit. I'm definitely still on the lookout for my works of art. I'm still doing sort of tweaks here and there on my island, but I'm definitely not immersed as I used to be. So what I decided to do was pick up another game that I uh, had been playing a lot early in the pandemic and before Animal Crossing came out, and that was uh, Stardew Valley. And it's a fascinating little game with some really sort of emotionally charged little ditties here and there throughout the game. And I think it's quite impressive because I believe the creator of the game did everything. It's kind of one of those one-stop shop sort of deals where he did all the coding and all the artwork as well as all the music. I really like the emotional impact that this game goes for because there's a lot of uh, sort of interstitial cutscenes here and there in the video game when you start to grow relationships with people. And it's not just romantic relationships, which are in the game, but there's also really interesting friendships that build out. If you give gifts and you strengthen bonds, you get really interesting cutscenes. And the one that I just kind of recently stumbled upon was the cutscene with uh, a character named Shane, who's a single guy who has an alcohol problem. And the final cut 
cutscene before you really kind of reach that pinnacle with him as he's like drunk and he's kind of laying at the edge of the cliff ready to jump. It's like, this is a video game. This is going places, which is amazing. That's so, dark. It, it yeah, that's is. pretty heavy. It is. It's quite something. And music plays a really huge role in not only kind of the pastoral elements of owning a farm, but also the really sort of whimsy that you you get when you're doing your mining or doing your foraging. But then when you're dealing with real emotions in these cutscenes, I think the music definitely plays a, a really great role there. So that is something that I've been revisiting recently. The second thing, though, is completely out of the video game space. And it is I've been listening to Carly Rae Jepsen's Emotion <laughs> album. <laughs> lot recently which is why i wanted to leave it till second because recently i saw a post from our our lovely co-host anthony's facebook page about how he's run his own tabletop rpg based on carly ray jepson which i absolutely need to know more about for all those people when they hear the name carly ray jepson typically call me maybe is the first thing that comes up and it should because that song is a banger and it's amazing and it, emotion really goes places one of the big reasons i decided to to get back into uh, listening to it on a regular basis is to introduce my wife to it first because she hadn't heard it before and we had watched the video for i really 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 like you which is tom hanks kind of mm -hmm. motoring around a city which is amazing for a carly Rae jepsen song so yeah that's been on the uh the cd player quite often and yes it is a a little sort of homage to our good co-host Anthony's here is his amazing game master skills with the Carly <laughs> Rae Jepsen uh, RPG. But I need to tell you something. So I think the secret's <laughs> out. I'm a bit of a Carly Rae Jepsen fan. <laughs> and yes, I ran a uh, tabletop RPG through Zoom Carly Rae Jepsen themed game called Boy Problems. And it was a three chapter ordeal that started in April of this year. And then I ran one in probably May. And then I think I just ran one two weeks ago. So actually, no, sorry, it started in February. This has been like an ongoing thing, but yeah, it was a game I found on Etsy and it was like $9 and somebody just kind of created this RPG where you create characters and you either respond with a sword, which is logical, or you respond with emotion. And like <laughs> the game is littered with Carly Rae Jepsen song references. And also I got to create the story of what was going to happen. So I got to add in all these things. And it really was just a hoot. I really am into RPG right now. So I'm very glad that you are experiencing emotion because it really is a stellar 10 out of 10 album that I think a lot of people slept on and then kind of creeps into conversations where people are like, have you ever listened to that full album? It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I guess for myself, what the biggest thing that I've been listening to, besides actually Emotion Side B, because I might have gotten a signed copy by Carly Rae Jepsen on Discogs, <laughs> it was 
So pretty. Anyway, I keep getting distracted. Uh, what I'm listening to right now is the Cruella soundtrack. Oh. So uh, okay. Disney Plus released the Cruella movie, uh, and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. I will, but lots of feedback I'm hearing is that it's a really fun, uh, well-made movie, albeit if it's unnecessary. I think a lot of people are like, well, this didn't really need to be made, but I would argue that a lot of the Disney remakes uh, fall in that category. But certain ones I have fun with, and I think Cruella is going to be one I have fun with. A subsect of pop culture is that gays love fashion. <laughs> and since it's Pride Month, this uh, movie is becoming receiving a lot of gay feedback about how beautiful it is and how inspired by drag it is. So I've just been listening to the soundtrack nonstop, and uh, it's phenomenal. Like, the lead song, Call Me Cruella by Florence and the Machine, is so beautiful, and it takes... One part of the original Cruella de Vil, Cruella de Vil, and like takes that melody and like creates a new song with it, and it's 10 out of 10. And the whole sound, like score, is really well done, but the soundtrack is all like this late 70s, early 80s punk rock pop music. So it's a been, I've been obsessed about both the score and the soundtrack for Cruella. Call me crazy, call me sane, but you're stuck in the past, and I'm ahead of the game. A life lived in penance, it just seems a waste. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Somebody's gonna write like a, a history thing about sort of the shift to uh, movies about the villain. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, because I mean, it, it's been something that I don't know when it started exactly, but you know, it's been a thing for a while now, and. Cruella in particular, like the animal lover in me, I just, it's, I have a hard, like I've seen all the trailers and stuff and I'm like, I have a hard time finding or wanting to allow space for this story to be told because it's like, well, wait, you're an awful, horrible person that does like the one thing in life that I have probably the least a bit of tolerance for, even though you're entirely fictional. But having said that, I now you've got me kind of curious, and I'm wondering if I should maybe, I don't know. Listen, I have been in that space for quite some time, because there is a board game that I play called Villainous. The whole concept is you play as Disney villains, and your whole goal is to fulfill the villain's goal, like from the movie. So Captain Hook, you have to like defeat Peter Pan, and they had uh, Scar, and Ursula, and Queen of Hearts, and you have individual boards, and they're set up to finish your goals from the movie. And for the longest time, fans of the board game were calling for Cruella DeVille to be added. Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, oh, <laughs> because <laughs> the ultimate end result of Cruella DeVille is she wants to kill puppies. And so everybody was like, yeah, we'd love to see Cruella, but how do you, like, the board game would be like, yeah, I've got to kill 25 puppies. So they released an expansion pack with Cruella just last year, but the goal is to kidnap 25 puppies. Come on. (laughs) Okay, well. And so I was like, oh, okay, I guess I can see how that, you know, works. Because you don't mention it, but what is she going to do after she gets those puppies? And then this Cruella remake was announced, and I thought the exact same thing. I was like, the end result of that movie is she's going to want to kill some dogs. How? What? Where? And how are you going to complete that? Like, as a story and plot device, you really have to steer it towards her becoming a really awful person. And they've announced there's a sequel. 
Um, and the idea Glenn. is actually they're going to have Glenn Close come in because she was the original Cruella in the remake in late 90s. And the idea is for Glenn Close to come in and they're going to do a Godfather 2 type storytelling oh, where wow. both Emma Stone and Cruella from the, I guess, present are going to be... Anyway, it's one of those things that, again, Jason, I'm like... It's, it's about a dog killer. I'd actually bring this back to thank you, Breaking Bad. <laughs> yeah, that's like, a good point. All In the early 2000s, there was a shift where all of a sudden you had stories being told where the villain is being explored as being sympathetic and it makes it more interesting and dynamic. But I think it really started like this television idea kind of came from it. Anyway, it'd be interesting to track, but... We could probably go a little bit earlier as well with The Sopranos. I think oh, that's yeah, definitely looking at the mob and gangsters and kind of Tony Soprano as this great anti-hero who's doing some awful stuff, but you get emotionally attached to it because of all the stuff that's going on in the show. So I think we could probably definitely see that there. But more recently, for sure, the Breaking Bad sort of situation is definitely does look at glorifying the villainous aspect of these people. And with the Corella thing, we know that the eventual goal is that she's going to get to the Dalmatians bit, but what happens in between there? And I haven't seen Cruella. I don't know what the plan is for Cruella part two, but there has to be something else in there that's going to be pretty dastardly and awful to get to that point. And I'm just really interested to see what the heck's going on there. So I think there are two things different going on because, I mean, you can't talk about The Sopranos without films like The Godfather or, you know, like all those other mafia films that came out right around the same time. There's always been films about villains who are cruel and un I mean, like, well, just the villain's perspective and sort of like telling that's that's not necessarily new. What I think is new and kind of novel more recently in films like Joker or, you know, like Suicide Squad, it's that they existed in a different setting. Like, you know, we've heard the story of like the hero in pretty much all those films. And for whatever reason, people have decided, well, let's talk more about the other side of that dynamic within known established story uh, lines or whatever. That's what I think is novel. And that's why it's kind of like, oh my gosh, like, why why are we going here with Cruella? But again, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I may not be able to get over that to see that particular one, but it has been kind of fascinating, especially as I like, you know, flip through the Disney app and like they're, you know, they're, they're promoting that uh, movie pretty hard, but it's just like... <sighs> We're going to see it here in a couple of days. We're going to see Loki come out on oh, Disney+, yeah. Plus, which is, again, the villain. Marvel Cinematic Universe, kind of that first real uh, known villain, get his own show. I mean, yes, Loki's gone through some sort of redemptive arc in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but again, it's this focus of in-universe villainy and how we're going to, to review this character, so... Yeah, good good take, Jason, and it'll be interesting to see if you eventually do kind of give in to fascination and see it eventually. And on that note, if you're floating around the Disney Plus app, they've recently added a show called Modoc, and it is in the style of Robot Chicken, and uh, I watched the first three episodes and I'm sold. <laughs> like, talk about a villain who's got a interesting presentation, and they've made a really funny show out of it. But... Speaking about villains and this whole anti-hero, 
I think that's actually a really good segue into our horror masterclass. By the way, every time you refer to my masterclass episode in horror, I was just like, I feel so chuffed. I feel like a f***ing university professor or some shit. You are, truly. It was, it, it, I know we, we joked around in the episode that it was your great TED Talk. TED Talks don't last an hour and 50 minutes. <laughs> like, oh, it was, God, a, it I, was elaborate. It was in-depth. Oh, it was personal. It was well no. thought out, well presented. Well, I'm telling you, it was, it was a class. It was a course, university-level course on the history of horror cinema. Also an excuse to listen to me talk for two hours. Like, anyway, <laughs> we'll see I, what the download numbers are. Yeah, exactly. I was just gonna say, I'm like, well, if it tanks, we know what ta- we know what direction to take after that. One of the ways in which this whole discussion about villains and anti-heroes really, to me, ties into what we're going to explore today is the notion of horror as a anti-hero. You know, everyone always thinks about the final girl and everyone always thinks about um, how people are going to survive a horror movie. But I think what actually tends to happen in a lot of horror movies is that you end up getting fan favorites of people who actually like the villain more than the main characters. <laughs> and a lot of times in horror, especially or 80s horror, there's a lean in towards certain tropes that characters fall into so that they can get killed off. And so that's really the only purpose that they serve. Is And so there was a shift in that 80s where all of a sudden the villain became the one that everybody wanted to see you know succeed even though they know they're going to die in the end they had a great time watching everybody die in these elaborate ways along the way and so there's almost a cheering on of that horror icon um, which i always found really interesting Um, and so again when we look at something like Candyman, it kind of throws a wrench in it Candyman was originally based on a a short story written by clive barker clive barker is a gay author uh painter artist from england and he rose to prominence in the uh, mid 80s uh with his art and his literature and he's most notably uh or i guess he's most known for creating hellraiser hellraiser a film by clive barker will tear your soul apart So he wrote the original Hellraiser, and he directed it, I believe. Um, But he was one of the biggest producers of horror in the late 80s, specifically in literature and film. And he actually is very well known for his horror and inclusion in horror. After kind of Hellraiser made money in the late 80s, they started to shop around and look at different other properties that he had. And um, that's where Candyman actually has its origins, is in a short story called The Forbidden. And the short story is follows a similar structure that Helen is a university student doing a paper and writing a thesis, and then uh, she ends up uh, learning about the urban legend of Candyman and eventually succumbs to him. So it's a pretty simple uh, story, but it's the basis of it is actually in class. 
So as Helen is uh, focusing on graffiti in the story, and she's like trying to understand the art of graffiti, the and that's her presentation. And so it becomes an issue of class: is that she's a well-to-do English university student, and she's studying, you know, low-class art. And so that's where the discussion, or that's where the kind of commentary that uh, Clive Barker was coming coming at. But when it was decided to make a movie out of it, the director Bernard Shaw who's white, decided to incorporate the issue of race into the production of Candyman. So that wasn't the original intent of the story, but he actually changed that part of it and set it in Cabrini Green because at that time, that's where there was a lot of discussion about race in Chicago particularly. And so the movie Candyman morphed into something else. And I think it's a really interesting entry in the horror genre because it really isn't like anything that came before the concepts that are in it are i think are interesting in a social commentary way but also just an urban legend way for me personally that really piques my interest so i guess at this point what i want to do is ask you guys how did you like the movie so I, I was able to grab a copy from a local video store and watched it through and... It, okay, wait, 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 oh. wait, wait. Sorry, not to cut you off. Mm-hmm. But what the hell? You have a local <laughs> video store somewhere Seriously? near you? I feel like that's a topic in and of itself. I agree. I'm so jealous that you actually just got to say I rented Candyman from a store. I did. Oh, I, we are God, doing curbside so pickup. I got to call and say, I would like the 1992 Candyman, please. But yeah, it, it was classic sort of physical media, which was really lovely to get into. It was the DVD where it had the widescreen and the full screen, one on one side, one on the other. I got to put it in my proper DVD player and skip through previews it was traditional dawn back in the 90s watching movies which was lovely and i would say it it was definitely an interesting take on horror whereas i think it was it definitely doesn't ascribe to current horror tropes i think it's it's a lot slower like super slow and i mean the villain is so or the villain i mean Candyman is so sparse in the movie it is definitely more of a character focus on Helen and just like a descent into psychosis and madness and nobody believing her and you kind of go along with her situation even though there is this real serious threat to her in the form of Candyman. I would say in what you just kind of talked about, Anthony, this idea that the original story kind of was based around a university student studying graffiti and then how it kind of twisted into, I think Helen and her uh, colleague, her classmate there were, their focus was on urban legend and on the supernatural. And then there was all this huge focus on graffiti, which I didn't quite understand why the emphasis was still there on graffiti. Like if you're there for urban legend, I understand that you're trying to get a sense of the environment and what she was living in and and the race situation in in Cabrini Green. But why then the emphasis on taking pictures of sweets to the sweet, like the, the Shakespearean graffiti. And I get the the picture like there is that kind of that gaping mouth as, as Helen's 
things crawling through the wall there. I, that makes sense. But the rest of it just didn't really, I didn't really follow that. So I, I guess there's a bit of a disconnect when it goes from the written piece to the movie where there was still this adherence to what the character was originally doing, but it just didn't, the connection didn't make sense to me. The rest of the movie was, I think it was pretty good. I wouldn't say that it was scary in the sense like a, a traditional yeah, yeah. horror. It's more psychological thriller to me. This idea that people don't believe her things are happening and then she's kind of taking part because Candyman is controlling her and, and he wants her to submit to him and just accept being the victim. And then to kind of throw in the race component, like with Candyman being this guy who was who was lynched and horrible atrocities, like off with the hand and then all the bees put into his open chest cavity. Like it it just it didn't connect for me. I didn't quite understand the the connection there. I, I didn't see what the point was of having Candyman be who he was like it could have been any sort of killer in in this regard and maybe it was just convenience of the setting maybe Bernard Shaw just really wanted to have a race conversation so he decided to build this movie around it but for me it was kind of middle of the road I would say it, it wasn't anything it wasn't horrible but it wouldn't be writing home to say this is absolutely something that people need to be watching to completely understand the the horror genre of the early 90s fair dinkum so Gosh, um, outside of when we started this conversation, I told you, like, you know, as a kid, Trilogy of Terror kind of threw me, like, as an adult, part of the reason why I don't particularly care for the genre very much is because I almost never find it scary. At times, it might be kind of sick or gory, or even twisted, but not scary in the, like, the real sense of things. Like, there are other genres that portray things that I tend to find a lot more scary and react to than the horror genre in and of itself. So with that foundation, I guess what I'll say is that there are lots of sort of things going off to me like as I was watching it. I, I started to uh, look for it physically and I did see it in a Barnes and Nobles for like 10 bucks and I was like, yeah, but I don't really want to own it after, especially since I expect it to suck. Um <laughs> Then, you know, like I discovered, like I was hoping, I was like, all right, well, maybe I'll luck out and it'll be on like Hulu or Netflix and then I won't have to pay anything for it. it that wasn't the case, but it was on Amazon Video, but it wasn't free to Amazon Prime members. It was like something you had to rent. I'm like, well, okay, all right. For the love of the game and for, you know, this thing that we've created with this podcast, sure, I'll, I'll spare four bucks. As I was watching it, part of me was kind of giddy to see like parts of Chicago. I mean, I, I as I've, we mentioned before, I'm from there. I haven't been there in any way, shape, or form since about 2004, 2005. Oh, so, wow. you know, to see any parts of uh, the city sort of portrayed in that way and like things that were kind of familiar to me was like, oh yeah, the, that that's pretty cool. You know, and also I guess part because like I almost ended up at UIC for um, University of Illinois at Chicago for uh, grad school. At least I gave it a thought. So that part was kind of cool. Then we get to Cabrini Green. And to be honest with you, while I've passed by Cabrini Green, like when I was in the city, you know, many times, like I definitely never set foot in it. So whether it was like, you know, I had a conversation with my uh, uh, wife as we were watching it because she was watching it too, just because she was pretty sure she saw it, but definitely not in a long time. And, you know, she, she loves horror films. So she yeah, was yeah. just doing it to see... 
you know catch up whether this was like something she kind of slept on or whether like her critique back then still stood so we're watching it and you know like i'm noticing the graffiti uh in the well i'm noticing the projects and i'm like okay that could be cabrini green i can't totally remember but it could also like you could literally insert any project from chicago when that was a thing because you know they've since torn them all down and that would be pretty accurate except for the level of graffiti in the projects first of all i was like i was looking at that and i'm like okay nobody does that in the projects <laughs> like the the sort of graffiti you find in the projects and i only know this because again not like it's the projects are places that i frequented but i had set foot in a handful in my time there it's all gang related right like it's all sort of like very simplistic like there's no um for those familiar with the magazine the source or anything like or uh, stuff like that they used to have segments where they would show the more artistic side of the stuff that gets painted on like the the l trains in like new york city or like elsewhere in the world you know graffiti in the projects is not that so first of all i was kind of bemused by that i was like yeah okay that that you would never find that there but even in the case that you know like a little bit of sampling of that in my past was like not representative and you know maybe there is some crazy project like that they're definitely not quoting something like, you know, sweets for the sweet. Like, it's just not going to, like, that's just not hip hop at all. Like, it, it, it just isn't. So, I, you know, on that level, I was like, okay, well, this is an interesting setting. And then out pops Vanessa Williams. And at yes. first I was like, wait, Vanessa Williams, like the former uh, Miss America? Vanessa Williams, when I saw that in the credits, I was like, well, okay, I guess that's possible, but I'm sure she's not necessarily glowing about this role. And then it's the other Vanessa Williams from the Soul OG, Food. yes, Vanessa E. Williams. And I'm sitting there, like, looking at her and looking at the role they have her in, and I'm like, come on now. In no way, shape, or form is she believable as somebody, like, living in any apartment in the projects. But, you know, I, I digress. So I'm like, and then she starts to talking, and I'm like, jeez, Vanessa, <laughs> like, come on. Anyway, the first moments or whatever, I'm just kind of like, okay, well, there there's some really cheesy, inaccurate, unbelievable things happening here. But then... You know, the, the premise with, like, two grad students, like, uh, checking out Urban Legends, I was like, okay, well, that's plausible. I could sort of see that thing going on. But from the moment, you know, you, uh, I think, Anthony, you mentioned, like, it did away with a lot of horror film tropes. Well, one, it kind of stuck with pretty closely, because from the moment they showed a sister, like, hanging out with, you know, Helen, I was like, oh, you're so dead. Mm -hmm. You just don't know it I yet. know. And lo and behold, it took a little while. It did? It did. She it, lasted, it, you know. For like three quarters of the movie, and then at the <laughs> end, it was like, nope, remember. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, okay, well, that box had been ticked. The other thing that I guess struck me with Candyman as the, I don't know, villain's the right word, but obviously the killer, the, the menace in the film it just, you know, we are going to talk about this, I guess, with Vampiros Lesbos, but sort of like, you know, the social commentary. I couldn't tell if this was social commentary meant like either Clive Barker was, you know, had perspective in the homosexual space that Anthony, you'll talk more about. And like, you'll break down some things that like I totally didn't miss because, you know, I'm I'm not. But from the race side of things, I was like, Oh, that's pretty racist. Okay, so we've got this big black dude killing folks, not very frequently, but killing folks. 
But then there's this weird sexual tension with him and Helen mm-hmm. that sort of culminates in the end with like his hook flirting with like whatever the hell she was wearing at that particular moment. That made no sense. And I was like, okay, loving versus, you know, like the state of Virginia. Like I had those sort of vibes where it's like, oh, this taboo thing of a, a black guy being interested in this pure white woman was just like, it was a little too much for me. Um, I watched the whole thing. I'm not sure if I totally understood why he was so interested in making her into one of him. And then, you know, like the ending where she sort of dies saving this baby, but like, you know, the baby's unharmed and like the the mother, Vanessa Williams, is grateful. But like, you know, she succumbs to the burns and then, you know, lo and behold, uh, <laughs> the 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 winch that stole her man is now the the one that will seemingly become the new her because she's gonna see to it. I don't know. I just was kind of like, hmm. Okay, well, I saw it. Here we are. <laughs> yeah, and that checkbox off. <laughs> <laughs> Assignment completed. But so, uh, I didn't love it. Like, from the point where Helen and her classmate and then Helen's husband, and they're at, like, this dinner, and they they are talking with this other professor who did a paper on Candyman, like, 10 years ago, and they're like, oh, we're going to blow yours out of the water. We're going to bury it. Yeah, and then (laughs) then he's, like, going on about Candyman and the legend, and she kind of – she's sitting there smoking, and she has her cigarette up, and it goes almost basic instinct. Yeah, yeah, And she just gets, like, the soft filter lens comes out, and she just keeps on getting more and more infatuated. And it's like, why? Why are we doing this here? And then the idea that Candyman has this power to overwhelm and to put Helen into a trance to do his bidding. And then there's that sexual hook thing at the end where she's in the clothing of the nurse she she knocked out. Then the hook's like going up her leg and it was always you, Helen. It's like, where is this coming from? I don't understand. Like, if you're trying to tell a story about an urban legend and, and all that, sure, great. If you're trying to tell... Like a, a sexual story between anti or antagonist and protagonist, maybe. But yeah, there's that awkward sort of forbidden fruit thing with black man, white woman. It's like, come on, this is this is a little unnecessary. And if the original story had like kind of none of that associated with it, if it was more just urban legend and interest in, in Candyman, I, it's interesting that the director, um, Shaw, decided to take it that way. But I wanna I wanna go down to Anthony and get now your official take on all this. Yes. So I appreciate these reviews so much because it highlights to me two things. One, my love of this movie is based in nostalgia. A large part of it is based in nostalgia. I saw this when I was younger. I saw this when many of the contents of this movie uh, or many of the themes and subjects of this movie, I didn't fully understand. And so when I'm able to revisit something that I really enjoyed in the past and look at it from today's perspective, I 100% agree with all of the reviews and the, or sorry, the feedback that you guys just gave. It plays into some really negative tropes about the lecherous black man and the innocent white woman and the whole concept of white representations of black culture and visual representations that are not true to life whatsoever. And even just the whole concept that a lot of the race commentary was put in to this movie separate from the book. But it's so interesting that you guys picked up on the sexual 
uh, the sexualization part of it, because that is actually part of Clive Barker, Barker's MO. And so he really delves into a lot of sadomasochism. He looks at the pain and the pleasure. He's looking at uh, where does pleasure stop and where does pain start? Where does pain stop and where does pleasure start? And so they really do lean into some of those Clive Barker themes albeit with a very misunderstanding of the concepts that Clive is really going for, that as a gay man, he's looking at different aspects of sexuality. Whereas in this context, it really is just reduced to one single relationship or one type of pairing between Helen and Candyman. And so while it's interesting that they were able to interject that representation of Chicago, it's unfortunate that they didn't go further with it. And I think there's always, to me, one line that stands out into kind of like the thesis of what they were trying to say, but it's limited. And it's a line in which Helen and uh, Bernadette are walking after Helen has been hit uh, across the eye and she's recovering. And she says something along the lines of, uh, you know, nobody would uh, respond to any calls there, but a white woman is assaulted and immediately it's responded to. And so there's this one line in the movie that, again, is really trying to push that, like, yes, we're aware of what's going on. But, again, the whole other representation is not so strong. And so just from that perspective, I completely understand where you guys are coming from. That being said, as a horror movie, I really enjoy some of the diversions it takes and some of the ways in which it deviates from those normal typical type of horror type scenarios. And I also appreciate it because while it's not perfect, the interjection of race into horror is an important part of this because, and I think we talked a little bit about this in the Masterclass episode, that horror is typically a very white space. And even during that conversation, I even kind of realized sometimes that I get blinded by that, that I'm like, right, I always forget that it is a typically white space. And it wasn't until more contemporary horror that we're starting to see that uh, reflection of it. And the whole, 90s was a really interesting time for that because there was a lot of black horror. Um, and there was a lot of horror that was being directed toward black audiences. Candyman was not necessarily one of them um, because I think it still fell to you know, some of the uh, tropes, but it was a success. It is very highly regarded along among a lot of horror circles as one of the, you know, better movies, uh, better horror movies, that, pardon me, that came out of the 90s. And one of the best things about the movie for me was the soundtrack. Um, and so I guess that's the other part of the discussion I want to talk to you guys about is how did you find the music? What did you like about it? What did you not like about it? Was it adding something to the story or did you find it detracted? So I was reading a little bit about Candyman, and it's interesting that Philip Glass originally was extremely disappointed in the movie. Yes. And I, I remember you saying something along the lines of, like, Philip Glass, it sounds like he just kind of launched himself into this movie as opposed to doing kind of the buildup that typically composers will do in preparation for a film. And he just kind of scored it. And he was looking at, I believe, Barker's original story and was kind of 
almost mapping the score around that as opposed to what Shaw did with the actual movie and then was eventually sort of it was uh, immediately following it really disappointed with the way the movie turned out and kind of the score in combination a little bit that it was it, it was so different from what he originally expected since then though I believe in 2014 he did an interview and he said he still receives money from it so he's kind of fine with it he's it, money has made him okay with his artistic <laughs> Thank you, Exactly. <laughs> right. And it's for me, um, I felt the score was very one note. It just felt very basic. I think that can work for certain movies. I think there's definitely that sort of uncomfortableness if you're just hearing one sound and it's played differently. I think we, we talked about that with the water phone in the, the Masterclass episode. And I think there's good use of his score in this movie at times. But I think overall, I found it a little bit underwhelming. I do enjoy, uh, I enjoyed listening to it solo apart from the movie. But I think when I combined it with the visuals, that's when I thought things were a little let down by the film itself. And I think the scores, it's good on its own, but it's not good paired with Candyman. Yeah, I, I tried to keep that thought in my mind throughout the film as I was watching it. And I think, so two things occur to me, not having the sort of love of scores that you all have, but having a profound love for various soundtracks at different points in my life. To me, I think there are two questions that I, I've come to the conclusion I ask myself when it comes to uh, music and movies. First, is the music in and of itself, like outside of the context of any film, is it great? Is it a great piece of music? The second question is, well, does it actually fit the context that it's been inserted in the film? So that's sort of my perspective. Like, I don't, you know, I, I think we've established over all these episodes, I don't have this sort of profound love of scores that you all do. But watching that film and listening to the way music was used in it, it's kind of funny that, Don, you said the whole one note thing, because like I have a different sort of thought about that typically when I'm thinking about like one note things, but I think it's actually really appropriate here. It felt hella generic. Like if I'm sitting here making like in a factory making widgets, but the widgets are horror films, like that is how I would insert that music into that film. It, it just felt very formulaic. It didn't, the music in and of itself was unremarkable. Like there's nothing about it. It was like, oh yeah, the moment when this happened and this music was playing, that music was really interesting. I didn't have a, that sort of moment with Candyman once. But yeah, it, it just, it felt very boilerplate. So that's my take. It definitely ties in with the religion motif that I think Candyman tried to shoehorn in at the closer to the end. Like you would see sort of little bits and pieces here, like above Helen's bed, there's a crucifix. The painting on the, on the walls and Candyman's, I, I, I don't know where what you would call it, like the location where Candyman is located. There's kind of like Helen at the very, very end is, is an angel kind of ascending. Then there's kind of a big sort of tableau of a bunch of different characters, very sort of Renaissance and, and uh, very sort of biblical in that sense. So I think the choir fits in well there, but that to me, it felt like Shaw added that in last minute to kind of tie things together. I don't know why. Like I, it seemed like there was just a lot going on with the race conversation, 
the horror conversation and then at the end this religious piece which I think Philip Glass picks up but if Philip Glass was already doing that ahead of kind of understanding the film and, and going based off of the story maybe that should have been more of a focus maybe that should have been Shaw's focus solely maybe there is that sort of component that really would would have made the Glass score a tie into the to the visuals even more uh, or even better I should say but yeah Jason I think your assessment's really good I like the two-pronged approach that I did like the score I liked the score on its own I listened to it first kind of solo before I saw Candyman then watching it with Candyman or listening to it with Candyman it was just just didn't connect for me Anthony, I feel bad. This feels like it's just <laughs> all over a movie that you love and, and really enjoy and are bringing some great stuff too. And Jason and I are just kind of blase Listen, about it. I think that is one of the most important parts of discussion is that I understand that I love Candyman and I really appreciate it and it's a time and a place, but also I have an interest in it that doesn't mesh well with like what your interests are, your guys' interests are, and that's not bad. That's good. It's generating discussion. Like I live in a bubble where uh, a lot of the horror folks I say are like, we're all huge Candyman fans. And you know, if you mention the score, everyone's like, oh my God, it's so good. So it is nice to get a perspective to be like, oh, right. Yeah. Like other people have different perspectives of this. So I wouldn't say apologize about that. I actually really appreciate this. This is a really good opportunity to explore. Again, as I say at the beginning, a lot of my love is based in nostalgia. Like, I will admit that, again, I agree with some of the points you guys have made. But I love Candyman, and I love the score. And I, again, it's different uh, strokes for different folks. Because Candyman is actually one of the uh, things I put on to calm down. If I'm like, if it's busy or if I'm feeling overwhelmed and anxious and I'm feeling like I've got a lot going on, uh, particularly if it's work related, I really love putting on the Candyman soundtrack because it allows me to focus my thoughts. And it starts off with this um, uh, music box, the opening theme or, you know, Helen's theme that and it's so simple to me and it's so calming and I really do come back to it time and time again. I have it on vinyl, but I listen to it a lot on Spotify. So when Philip Glass says he gets a check every year, he can take $6.80 of that for me because that's how probably much I play uh, Philip Glass's Candyman soundtrack. So um, Anthony, tell us why you love the soundtrack i really want to get into specifically and i understand that the nostalgia if that's a huge component great but i really want to get a sense of what about that soundtrack really sort of speaks to you emotionally musically and mm. what what is your enjoyment from the music so right off the bat i think one of the things that really strikes me is the music box i love music box music <laughs> i think it's very simple yet can be so effective and it's often a, it's a, I would argue it's a common horror movie trope <laughs> because it's one of those things that you can add at the right moment to give a certain amount of eeriness and creepiness. Um, and so a lot of horror movies and haunted house movies and paranormal will include, you know, small music box. So in my head, I already had an idea of how music boxes fit in the horror universe. So for Clive Barker, or sorry, for Philip Class to 
go in with this uh, already preconceived idea about a music box fitting in. Um, and I don't even know, like, I haven't read the original story of The Forbidden, so I don't know if that's part of it. But I just love that beginning intro of it's a sweet tune, but it has a menacing creepiness to it. And I find that sets the stage really well, because as it builds, it doesn't build in the typical way, well, sorry, it builds in the typical way that it gets more anxiety-provoking over time. So there's like a seven and a half minute piece that is a lot of like, wee, 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 wee. and I always laugh when I'm like listening to that, because again, I'm just like, this is so nice and it reminds me of that scene in i don't know in futurama there's an episode where bender is experiencing a crisis and he goes to like robot therapy and oh, yeah. the yeah and the therapist like says mm, you need more therapy and it like goes to this flashing on and off light a big axe sword is like swinging back and forth and he's covered in spiders and rats and that's, like, supposed to be calming for the robot. And every time I hear that piece of music, that's always what I think of, is that for some reason, this elicits a calmness in me when normally if people are listening to this, after about 30 seconds, they're like, turn it off, Anthony. Turn it off. And I'm like, what? Oh, okay, sure. Pause. <laughs> and so I just find myself coming back to this as a little bit of a, it's like a comfort blanket, I guess I would compare it to. It's always funny the different reactions that people have to it. Again, you know, to hear you guys say, oh, that's, it was kind of generic and I didn't really like it. And I'm like, oh, because one, another reaction I had to it was, um, I was on a drive, a, a drive from Toronto to Ottawa to go visit my friends Alex and Joelle. And Joelle's mom lives in Scarborough and was asking for a ride. And we were like, yeah, absolutely. Come on up. Like, we'll drive with you and, you know, we'll have a nice weekend. So we drove up and I put on music and near the end it was getting dark and, you know, we were in rural Ottawa outside of area. But we're like, you know, driving down these like, old roads that are really dusted and, uh, you know, wooded. And I was like, oh, this is the perfect time to put on the Candyman soundtrack. And obviously I did. And I put on um, one of the last pieces, and I think it's called Helen's Theme. And it starts off with the music box theme, but it really, you know, starts to elevate into this choral singing. And there's ha, ha, ha. And so, you know, it's like 8.30 at night. It's pitch black. We're driving in rural Ontario and playing this, like, haunting music that I'm just digging. I'm just like, and then it hits me that I'm like, oh my God, I've got this, you know, older woman in the back of the car and she's probably like, what the fuck are we listening to? <laughs> and we drive in just to the, to the house just as it ends. And I turned off the music and I was just waiting for it. And she just perks up and was like, well, that was just a lovely song. Was that from a church? I really like that. That was beautiful. And I turned around to her and I was like, you just made the trip. Like, that was the most beautiful response to that. Uh, and I had to, we laughed because I was like, it's actually from a horror movie. And it's like one of the like scary scenes at the end. And she's like, oh my goodness. Are you and we just laughed because I was like, what a, a reaction. Like having no context to the Candyman movie, lore, whatever it is. She was just like, well, gosh darn, that is lovely. That context is, so is everything, eh? Right? And so I was like, yeah. what a reaction that she didn't know anything about it. And she took away it as this beautiful religious piece that, you know, speaks to your themes that, you know, sometimes it feels like it's shoehorned in. 
But I do feel like he was purposefully using that. Because, again, if he's basing the score on what Clive Barker was writing about, religion totally would have come up in that. Like, I don't know if you know this, but gays and religion don't go well together. What? <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't notice. Hashtag shocked. Like this. We're, well, like we can't continue the record now. That's just a revelation. <laughs> I know. I am shook as me. <laughs> Literally, that's what we are. We're blasphemous. Anyway. Well, hey, Anthony, for what it's worth, while I still have this point in my head, if I'm in a car with you in the middle of Bumblefuck, Ottawa, and you put on Helen's theme, and I'm in the back seat. I'm going to be calling all the people I love because I'm like, this is how I die. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is the end of my life right here. I'm going to end up in this cornfield or whatever. You know. Like, I thought I, I thought I knew him. <laughs> See, this is why I'm like, I have to give context for why I listen to the Candyman soundtrack because exactly that. Like, people will be like, "What is wrong with Anthony?" And meanwhile, I might have been like, this is the funnest trip ever, you guys. <laughs> um, anyway, so what I want to do to wrap up this discussion about Candyman is I want to talk about the sequel that's coming out. Okay. And I am really excited for the sequel, but I'm actually really interested for you guys to check it out. Considering now that you have the basis, the sequel is actually being produced by Jordan Peele, who's a, like kind of like the hottest name in horror right now. He is obviously like uh, he is the voice of horror right now, and I'm so happy that he's leading that because I remember like six or seven years ago when he was talking on P Key and Peele, and he did this interview where he's like, "I want to do horror. I want to get into horror," and I just I was like, "What? Really? Like he's so funny. It doesn't seem like horror would be his good genre." And here we are, seven years later, and he's literally the king of horror right now. And he's going to be producing it, and Nia DaCosta uh, is directing it. Then the sequel revolves around the little baby at the end of the first Candyman, Anthony, is going to be the focus of the sequel uh, and how he's an artist, and Vanessa E. Williams returns. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm really interested to, number one, see how... The Candyman story is going to be adapted with black creators and having more input and discussion around that. But also, the first trailer used Destiny's Child's Say My Name. So that's where I'm really interested to see where they're taking Candyman, is that the next step of it is that it's obviously a reboot slash continuation, but hot damn, I am really excited. And to bring back Tony Todd as Candyman is really impressive. It'll be interesting to see what they do with the character. Like, we're talking 90, what was that, 93 originally? So more than 20 years ago now? I mean, it, are they going to age Candyman? Are they going to de-age Tony Todd in the role? That'll be interesting to see. But... And also, word on the street is Helen is going to show up too. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. So I'm really... So that's what I say. Like It's a party. It is. It's going to be a, like a horror party. And apparently we're invited. Cabrini Green. It was the projects. I just moved in around the corner. The old candy factory. I'm an artist. You look up a candy man. He's the monster. It's part of this neighborhood. Why are you drawn to this? I'm hoping to spread the story. So, I mean, you can't put it in better hands, I think, right now. I think if anybody is going to take this, and given the nature of what the original movie was trying to say, I mean... Exactly. What Bernard Shaw was trying to do uh, with, with the race component clumsily, I think, in the original, I think Jordan Peele could definitely address it probably really well, just given that... 
he has been extremely successful at that in his most recent movies. And it's interesting what they're kind of doing with gentrification and looking at like it's the former site of Cabrini Green and new fancy, super expensive condos and all that. Just looking at the summary here online, I'm sure it'll be extremely well cared for the components that we felt were a bit clumsy and dropped in the original. And I'm sure there's going to be some some real interesting twists that he can bring. It, it's intriguing. I'm very interested to see what they can do with it. Mm-hmm. I'm also interested to hear more about how much Jason hates us. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know definitely not bad. But I mean, you know, I may end up seeing it for a whole host of other reasons. I mean, in the future conversations notwithstanding. I mean, I am actually, now that you mentioned that Vanessa Williams is coming back and reprising her role too, I'm I'm actually, I'll be on the lookout for interviews of her sort of outside, like talking about the film, because I'm really curious to see what she thought about, you know, her presence in that film in the first place Good versus call. however, you know, however she's being written and acting in it now. I'm really interested in her perspective, if for no other reason, um... But I'm willing to give it a shot if for no other reason, because, you know, I'm sure they'll this will make for great conversation later. But we are in a horror heyday right now that if there has been a resurgence and this happens every once in a while. And that's why I say it's so interesting in the history of horror that this isn't the first time this has happened where all of a sudden horror is super popular. Like this has happened four or five through times throughout the decades where it's just cyclical and capitalism, right? Like they're just trying to get different versions of what it is, is going to make them money, which again, to me, one of the reasons why I want to talk a little bit about vampirous lesbos is because I think, and I'm calling it now, I think we're going to start to see a little bit of a queer movement towards horror, and that's happening. And so right now there's a a lot of focus on Black experience and horror, and I think even at times it's becoming exploitative, where they're just creating horror movies based on the Black experience to say, look how terrifying this is. And it's really getting mundane, and there's a conversation going in with horror right now that's about, like, this is not really what Jordan Peele, I think, and others were trying to do. But the idea about representation is really starting to come into mind for me about horror, because they've just announced that there's going to be a a queer horror film that's being directed by an actual queer person with queer uh, actors, and it's going to take place at a conversion camp. Oh, gee. And right off the bat, I was like, okay. Then my next thought is, that actually could be really handled well, because that is terrifying, and that is an awful experience for a lot of uh, queer people. So this, so quickly, Anthony, I think this comes back to Jason's point in the Masterclass episode that horror originally was very focused on the white audience, and horror was not representative of the horrors that the masses were feeling. It was very Mm. much white horror and a a focus on what white people would find as horror. What you just said about, like, conversion camps being now the the focus of this queer-led horror film absolutely is exactly kind of what I think, Jason, you were specifically talking about. This is now an, a movie f- understanding its audience, focusing on its audience, and playing to its audience's worst fears. Unbel- like for me, just as a straight white male, that sort of like jumped the heart going, oh man, that's going to be an intense mm-hmm. subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Well, and that's why I think talking about Vampirous Lesbos, as weird as it sounds, really to me is a bit of an evolution. 
because Vampiros Lesbos is a 1971 movie that is filmed in Turkey, but with a primarily German-speaking cast. <laughs> so um, the reason why we as a podcast were looking at this is because several people had reached out to me about the Le- Vampiros Lesbos soundtrack. And it was released in the mid-90s as, uh, it was called Vampiris Lesbos Sexadelic Dance Party. And it was a bit of a hit in the mid-90s. So that's how it kind of has its uh, legacy within, I guess, a lot of soundtrack. And so two different people of my friends reached out and was like, yo, you got to check out this soundtrack. So that's why when I approached you guys, I was like, oh, we should check out this ridiculous 1971 Turkish movie that's all about a vampire, a lesbian vampire. Right off the bat, as a queer person, as a gay-identified cis male, I have appreciation for queer cinema. Whether whether it be created by straight people or queer people, I really appreciate representation. And oftentimes you'll hear a lot of queer people talk about we're starved for representation. Like, I am so starved for representation that when there was a same-sex line in a movie, I talked about it for three weeks with my partner because I was so excited that there was representation that, oh my God, this is a queer character in that movie I loved. Do you remember that scene? And I really, like, it It, it seems kind of pathetic when you, like, listen to it, but oh, I can't overstate how saturated queer people are for representation. Like, we are so saturated that we look to straight characters and we identify with those more than our own characters because we don't have any. So when I walk into something like Vampirous Lesbos, I know full off the bat this is made by a straight man with a sexual gaze, and he is looking to not disrupt society with his representation of lesbians. He's looking to terrify straight audiences with it. So I know the context in which this movie was made, but I still take an enjoyment out of it because I like queer representation. And even though there's parts of it that are really problematic... I thought there was a lot of great scenes in this movie that were really wonderful and very straightforward, even though it's a predator lesbian. So I'm interested to see what you guys thought, aside from the fact that as a gay man, the boobies didn't do any... Well, I love boobies, but just the whole (laughs) sexualization of it wasn't my thing. So I'm just like, I'm a bit of a different voyeur with these movies where I'm just like, yay, boobies and lesbians, I love it. (laughs) Whereas like, I think if straight men are doing that, people are like, Dude, that's creepy. It's so, it definitely creepy. Yeah, so yeah. like, I, you guys can't do the yay movies, but like, at least not outwardly. Yes, so you can enjoy it, but there's going to be a different enjoyment from it on your part. So I'm interested to know what did you guys think of Vampirus Lesbos? For for me, it was more of a, a soft golf clap of hmm, breasts. Very good. <laughs> um, so civil. <laughs> So I am. I I'll go first. Is that a Canadian thing too? <laughs> it is. And she takes off her shirt. Not oh. a golf clap. Oh my goodness! Like, Good for her. Fascinating. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, we have to snap. Yeah, we snap them. Snaps for sure. Yeah. 
It is the time. It is the era of the movie. Um, so I'm going to go first because I know Jason's got some thoughts. Obviously, I'm not going to have the same perspective as you, Anthony. I the movie. I looked at it as just kind of the movie itself. And I did the exact same thing unknowingly to myself as to what I did with Candyman. Because we talked about Vampiris Lesbos, I immediately jumped to the soundtrack first. And I've, I've listened to that now. I think it's a, a month and a half ago at this point. But I found it really interesting that the first instance of me finding it was this 1990 re-release that was meant for like the UK club scene and that's how people really loved it and I could see it this really fitting in this soundtrack really fitting in with that culture in the UK where it kind of raves originated and it made sense the music was pretty good for what that was and I'm not a I'm not a rave kid I was I grew up in in the 90s I would probably be kind of around that age where it would have been appropriate but I just I, I was in rural Ontario we did not exactly have a hot rave scene but I get it the music definitely in that context was good it was working it was really enjoyable it was really interesting i thought it it was intriguing to see that other um pieces of media tried to adopt it i know tarantino utilized one of the uh songs Mm -hmm. in jackie brown so there was definitely an embracement of it then we got to the movie this is not something i rented from the local video store i i do not know if they have a copy of vampiros lesbos we found it online uh through some very interesting uh sources and i was then able to porn yeah yeah i was like let's call it up shout out to porn we straight up watched it on x hamster it was ridiculous Uh, And so we're watching this movie, like in the context of when it was, I'm sure it would have fit a 70s era porn site because it is pushing against the norm of what people were really comfortable with. As you kind of mentioned, Anthony, that's kind of the point of this straight director who's really sex focused doing things to disrupt kind of what people are really comfortable seeing up on the screen. The movie is slow. (laughs) I would say this is extremely slow. This is classic sort of avant-garde 70s film for me where it's long lingering shots, not quite centered. I'm not expecting it to be like a Wes Anderson film where everything is on center, but there's like off to the sides and really slow buildups to certain things. And, and the acting is invisible. It is just flat. Yeah. People are trying And of course, there's this class, it's the situation of you're in Turkey, but it's a German film, and you've got... Which I found out is because there's actually a large business center in Turkey that is primarily German, and for Berlin. So like, yeah, like, uh, again, my partner Salem spent some time in Turkey, and so like, he explained that to me, because I was like, listen to this, and he's like, no, that makes sense, actually. I was like, oh, this is like the beginning of the development between Turkey and uh, Germany. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. No, 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 no. So it's, it it definitely has that sort of German film feel from my experiences of kind of German films from the sixties and seventies. It, it definitely is more disruptive cinema of just awkwardness and prolonged kind of shots and really sort of promiscuous sexual intentions around the plot around, as you mentioned, a predatory lesbian vampire. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And it just, I was unable to really get into the movie. I was unable to get into the soundtrack associated with the movie because then at that point, 
it just didn't fit. It didn't hit for me. And I, I understood the purpose of it, hearing your understanding of the film in kind of our lead up to recording the episode and watching the movie. I get it. Like, I, I understand there's important surrounding representation. You just, you don't have it. It's a huge issue. And I'm glad that there are mediums and there are, there are, uh, there's culture that you can consume that does have the minimal representation that you can kind of cling on to. I think that it's a huge issue for any anybody um, not having, not being able to see themselves up on screen. It's unfortunate that Vampiros Lesbos may have any of that because it just seems so slow and it seems like the type of movie that just no one will see. There will be no association with it and there will be no sort of connections unless people like us kind of go out of our way and seek it out, go to the porn sites and watch it and then talk about it here. So hopefully this will stimulate more interest in it and get more people thinking about it. For me, this is done. Like I'm good kind of shelving Vampiros Lesbos having kind of checked it off the list, but apparently it was hugely successful. It was a really popular movie, and the actress who played the lesbian vampire, she was going to sign this huge like movie contract with a, a German uh, film company, and she was killed in a car accident even before the film was released. I mean, it was a horrible tragedy there, but this was going to be like her star-making turn, and it was hugely successful. People were really interested in watching this movie, specifically in Europe. I don't think it, it had too much success in, uh, in North America, but yeah, it, it's not my thing. It definitely needs more to it. I can appreciate the soundtrack outside of the movie, but again, similar to what I was experiencing with Candyman, put the two together and it's not, you've got peanut butter in my chocolate, you've got chocolate in my peanut butter situation. It's more completely uh, two entities that would be best sort of separated. But I want to pass the conversation over to Jason. Oh, boy. Um, I mean, way to hype this up. I mean, either this is going to be like the fantastic hot take or it's going to fall flat. But for me, man, uh, so the film itself, uh, I'll start with the easy part. It made very little sense to me. I'm actually a little disappointed to find out that the purpose of this film was more of a director's kind of wet dream on film than it was like perhaps trying to normalize gay and lesbianism. I, I, finding that out from you, Anthony, I guess sort of was like, damn, well, okay. I, at least I thought maybe this was trying to advance the conversation in ha! some sort of politically no. forward way. No. Um, so hearing that, it's kind of like, well, that just makes it worse. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, like uh, from a storyline perspective, I mean, geez Louise, it wasn't even really clear why the vampire was into this chick in the first place. Because she's I, so beautiful. I, I mean, okay, uh, <laughs> sure, she, if you she say was so. There. She made it to the island, and it seemed like nobody had made it to that island in decades or, or millennia, apparently. There were lots of things that just didn't make sense from any perspective. For example, I wasn't quite sure what, if it was in Istanbul or whatever, I mean, I guess maybe whatever, but whatever city that was in Turkey, the fact that she's wandering around the city and there's like barely anybody there. I'm like, well, first of all, that just doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, it's the middle of the day and she's like, there are these scenes where she's sort of like moving around these like largely, well, almost completely empty streets mm -hmm. or whatever until she gets to her destination. Just everything about that was really bizarre and unnatural. 
then the vampire chick's relationship with that like i guess toady guy like i don't know whether he was gay or straight or whatever what like what his function conjunction junction what is your function <laughs> like that's kind of like how i felt about that guy like he was just kind of there the whole pseudo doctor guy or whatever like i it, none of it, like it just i was struggling to find meaning in this film and the one meaning i thought i found anthony you just took away a few moments ago so yeah it sucked um <laughs> it sucked and i was like okay well i don't get it now the funny thing about the music to me and you know, I've never actually been to a rave per se. I've been, Chicago is a huge house scene. There's lots of not just sort of the stereotypical radio house that gets played in Chicago. And some of the nightclubs, like when I was coming up, got pretty heavy. Not in the, like, I never saw like people doing like any illicit drugs, like right in front of me or anything like that. But if it was happening in the bathroom and I just didn't notice, I would not be surprised. What I'll say about the music in that film compared to what I think of as rave culture, it definitely wasn't that to me. Like, to hear that, you know, like, it had sort of, like, this life and, like, sort of the, the party scene or whatever is actually really surprising to me because the vibes I got from the music was, like, this was sort of, like, throwaway, like, Austin Powers music. It felt like sort of what you would expect from, like, the early 1970s, sort of that move away from psychedelica to, I don't know, just sort of that cliche 70s music. That's what it felt like to me. So it really felt like it could have been just as home at home with something that was spoofing the 70s. It wasn't special in any particular way to me as I was like, and it really didn't fit the film. Like, I didn't get that at all. I'm like, okay, so it this is not scary. It's not even like eliciting emotions of like, anxiety or fear or whatever so yeah i'm just panning this thing all the way across the board man i i just i yeah it was an awful movie <laughs> like it's not good in any way and the funny part is that i think it is going for such an art aesthetic like it is really trying to be serious and it's trying to be you know thought-provoking and it's trying to be beautiful and to me, that's the hallmarks of a good, bad movie, is that you had somebody who was trying their darndest to do their best, and it so failed badly <laughs> that it has nothing but eliciting humor, laughter. Like, I watched this, and I was able to, like, get up, roll a joint, go get a snack, and come back, and there was still, like, a three-minute long shot that was happening and i was like oh well i didn't miss anything we're in a situation like um the room tommy wiseau's the room yes that that was a movie a horrible movie some some would say the worst movie ever made and i just did uh, a guest appearance on a podcast no highway option where we talked about the room and we compared it to vin diesel's the pacifier that's a whole great episode and i recommend people go check out no highway option but it was a movie that was made in complete earnestness. Tommy Wiseau thought he was creating Citizen Kane, essentially. He originally wrote it as a play. Then he created a 500-page book around this horrible movie. And then it was made into a movie, which he thought he was giving a performance of a lifetime. Now we have, like, the movie The Disaster Artist, which kind of is the making of The Room. And you get a real sense of just how serious he was taking it. This feels exactly the same, just done 
30 years earlier, there was exactly as you said, Anthony, people were really taking this seriously. Like the director, there seems to be some seriousness around what he was really doing. Seriously creating a wet dream for himself and not doing exactly as kind of Jason said, not doing some sort of representation cinema that we were really hopeful was the real message there. But yeah, there's there is some some real heart put into this that now reads as absolutely ridiculous. And if they're not making light of it, there's probably some hurt feelings there as everybody else around it is now officially making a ton of fun of it. Yeah, and I think that's the other reason why, for me, it's a problematic movie that I watched, but I really had a lot of fun watching it because I got to experience a movie that I made fun of and I had a lighthearted experience with that had queer characters and gay characters and lesbians that, you know, even though they love sucking blood, they were still in a bit of a romance. And so... I don't take this movie seriously as queer representation, but I'm happy to engage with it as queer representation. The fact that, you know, we listened to this, the watch the movie and listen to the soundtrack and we were like, this is ridiculous. Really what I think I was happy to bring into this is the joy of watching something that isn't necessarily the best. And I really do feel like that for me is an underlying message when it comes to horror for me is that sometimes horror is not the best. But in my opinion, life is like horror because sometimes life isn't the best. And so sometimes you got to watch some shitty movies and sometimes you got to deal with some shitty situations in life. But I really do feel like there's a parallel for me that allows me to understand that there is going to be better stories and there is going to be better results. Um, and so the fact that a queer made movie, I think it's coming out on Netflix too. I have to get some more details about this conversion camp horror movie that's coming out. I'm excited because I'm like, good Lord, finally some like queer directed content that is probably going to have one of us survive. Like our chances of surviving horror movies are zero and our chances of surviving non-hero horror movies is also zero. <laughs> so I'm hoping that with this, we'll start to get a one <laughs> or a two and then we'll have queer characters that actually survive a movie. And that would be really exciting for me. And so... I look forward to bringing more contemporary conversations about horror to this podcast, because even though it's not neither of your, you know, number ones, I'm happy to include that conversation, and I want to bring that to this space. So I really want to thank both of you for engaging with me and allowing me to share some of my personal interests with you, because even though you didn't like Candyman, you didn't like Vampirous Lesbos, Again, I'm so happy we got to have this discussion because it's nice for me to hear that not everybody likes what I like, but I'm able to also share what it is I like about what I like. <laughs> this episode definitely takes us off the beaten path. We are wandering into the woods of randomness and genre experiences that are not typically discussed on podcasts of this sort. So I think it was extremely enjoyable. It was fun. I look at this experience that if we were all in the same room together watching these movies we'd be tossing popcorn and having a good old time because it Howling, would be, exactly. it would be a blast I, to right. do this as a group. Agreed. And I think our viewing experiences would be changed so much if we were able to do that. And when we are able to do that, because I'd like to think that at some point we will be able to do that, a live podcast recording together. That'd be oh. fantastic. Oh. That would be amazing. Be also, yay, boobies! <laughs> <laughs> Golf clap. <laughs> And I mean, and just to be clear, I don't dislike it for the reasons you like it. You know what I mean? Like, my reasons for disliking it are complete. Like, it's just sort of 
what happened when I observed, like, watched the film, and it was just my take. I, I mean, I think, you know, the reasons that you gravitate towards those films are really, really valid. And I'm glad that Thank we you. have sort of the, the platform to, to talk about those things. I just, yeah. I mean, just from my own <laughs> my own perspective and where I sit, I was just like, yeah, those those films are something. Well, that pretty much does it for our conversation here. We are going to conclude on a fantastic note here with Vampiros Lesbos. Really fun conversation, as always. I think this is a, a great end to a fantastic masterclass, Anthony. Um, in Thank in you. doing all the editing and the listening to it, it definitely shows your passion and interest in the in the genre, the connection it has for you, and how it just helps you experience cinema, experience movie music. Really gives you some some great things to continue to consume, even in into uh, these troubling times that we are still currently going through. So I'm glad that you have it. I'm glad that you were able to provide it to us. And we really just appreciate you putting it out there for us and for our listeners to really appreciate and enjoy. If you listeners want to go and enjoy the movies that we listen to, if you have a video store of your own, go find Candyman, go find Vampiros Lesbos. You can find it on X Hamster if you're really not working on a work laptop <laughs> or work computer that's not tracking your, uh, your keystrokes there. Go ahead and enjoy it there. <laughs> but what we also want you to do is to enjoy the podcast. Uh, we're wherever you consume your podcast, go ahead and subscribe to our show on whatever podcast app you use. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. Once you do that, rate and review our episodes. Ratings really do help uh, where we sit on uh, different charts and different positions here. When people are searching for podcasts, your reviews help us get more notice. So we definitely want to uh, get more interest from other listeners. So go ahead and give us a review. Five stars would be fantastic. And go ahead and continue to provide us support however you can. You can come and interact with us on our app active Twitter and Instagram accounts as well. We do some really great stuff there. Uh, those handles are at even the score pod. Or if you want to send us an email, you can email us at even the score podcast at gmail.com. One note I want to add in here. Uh, so I get some updates via our email address, just how we're doing uh, in some charts uh, across the globe. And I just want to say to whoever is listening to us in Fiji, thank you very much for making us number two in the video game chart. Oh my podcast. God, that's amazing. Holy hell. And number 11 <laughs> for the leisure podcast so we really do appreciate whoever's listening to us in fiji which is a, a wonderful little uh point of note here and a little badge of honor for us here at even the score so that's so amazing i love that it's fantastic to find these little sort of niches here and there and everywhere and of course that's why we ask for ratings reviews and uh, subscriptions and sharing um we want to be able to get wherever we can get globally uh so continue to support us that way of course before we go i want to thank and Anthony and Jason, as always, for participating in this record. Thank you very much to you both. Thank you. You're welcome. This was fun, as always. And thank you again to the listeners. We really do appreciate everything that you provide to us. And this has been Even the Score Podcast. Thank you very much. Take care. Yay! Boobies and lesbians. I love it.